Now, in 2017, uh, the UK suffered a terrible terror attack. Uh, this happened outside the Houses of Parliament. You may remember that four people died, uh, 50 were injured. And one of the people who died that day was an American tourist called Kurt Cochrane. Kurt had been with his wife, uh, Melissa, uh, on the final day of their holiday in Europe. Uh, they had come to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. And this was their, actually their first trip abroad. And so you can imagine that the family, Kurt and Melissa, came to London with such wonder and excitement, full of happiness. But of course, Melissa left London alone and with pen too deep for words, because of course, the terror attack took uh, Kurt's life. As I think about the story of Melissa, it reminds me that life is full of suffering, isn't it? And it's not just that life is full of suffering, it is that suffering enters our life often unannounced. And it seems to come at a time when we least expect it. Life is going well, then all of a sudden our world falls apart. That's the first thing that Melissa's story reminds me. The other thing that Melissa's story uh, reminds me is that much of the pain we suffer uh, in life is in fact caused by people around us. As they say, guns don't kill people, people kill people. That's the reality of life. Uh, we hurt one another so often. The, the challenge, if you like, the challenge of life uh, is that we cannot always stop people from hurting us. And so as we think about that reality, we need to know then how to respond to suffering in our lives. We need to know what to do when life is hurting. Randy Alcorn, uh, the American um, theologian, uh, says, any faith that leaves us unprepared for suffering is a false faith that deserves to be abandoned. Any faith that leaves us unprepared for suffering is a false faith that deserves to be abandoned. And we know that true faith is Bible-shaped. So it comes as no surprise then that as we open our Bibles we find in the scriptures the preparation we need to respond to suffering in our lives. The Bible is the only answer to the deep pain we have endured in the past, we are enduring now, and we are likely to endure in the future. And we are thankful to God that as we go through the Bible verse by verse in this church, we have come to Psalm 129. Because there are many passages in the Bible that speaks to the pain and hurt that we have suffered in the past, we may be facing or we will face in the future. But Psalm 129, I think, is, is, is almost perfect in terms of compared to, of course, the Word of God is perfect, but you know what I mean? It's, it really gets across the point in the way we can understand it. Now, we don't know when Psalm 129 was written, but we know two things. We know that this, though it was, would have been written by a single person, it was actually a hymn sang uh, or song sang um, by people in worship. We see that just from verse uh, 1, let Israel now sing. 
The other thing that this psalm uh, is reminding that we need to be aware of is that this psalm, of course, is a psalm of lament. Uh, it's a psalm that is getting across the deep pain uh, we have suffered. Uh, it seems that Israel um, used this psalm after they came out a period of great suffering. It is in some ways similar to Psalm 124. So this psalm is perfect, perfectly answers that question we all ask, isn't it? What do we do when our life is hurting? Well, let's see how this psalm answers that and the, and, and the, the notes on your outline should help you. The first truth I think we want to learn from this psalm is that all people of God suffer. All people of God suffer. That's the first truth we learn in this psalm. Notice that this psalm starts, as I said, with a lament to God. Look at verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. We pause there because we notice that the people of God, Israel, are confessing their deep pain to God. They are telling God how much they have suffered in their lives. They are saying to God, our history is written with our blood. Our enemies have long kicked us about like a football. They have long knocked us out, uh, knocked us out like a punching bag. Our enemies have had us by our throats for a very long time. And we know this is true, don't we? If we know our Bibles, the Old Testament chronicles the suffering of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. In fact, not too long ago, two, three weeks perhaps in our Bible study, we looked at some of that suffering in Egypt. So we know from the beginning of Egypt, since their youth, we might say, it was a nation born out of affliction. And as we follow them across, they leave Egypt. They enter the promised land of Canaan. If you are with us during the book of Judges, you've seen the oppression of, of, by people like Sisera, Cushan, Restahim, and the other kings that oppressed the people of Israel. The story throughout Judges is the story of deep suffering for the people of God. And as we follow that history all the way to the, we like, to the end, we see that he ends with them in captivity, don't they? In Babylon. Such great suffering they suffered. Um, not only in the first uh, the invasion of Assyria with the northern kingdom, but also the terrible destruction in the 6th century BC uh, that Nebuchadnezzar brought. It's a period of suffering. And if we know our Psalms very well, we jump to Psalm 137. And there we see that uh, it pours out the pain and hurt they suffered there uh, while they were in exile. The story of Israel proves the opening words of this song. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. These verses are reminding us that all people of God suffer at the hands of other people. Now, many of us know this truth intellectually. You know that. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that. But the Bible has put it here to remind you why. Because 
Even though we can hear this truth on a Sunday, when we are together, it is another thing to remember it on Tuesday when suffering, suffering bursts through the door of our lives unannounced. And so the Bible, God by his providence knows that. And that's why when you're in the church, you, it feels like you hear the same thing all over again. The reason is that we forget that. In the middle of suffering, our lives goes into a tailspin, doesn't it? We start wondering, God, are you still there? If I'm yours, why are you letting this thing happen? And the Lord in his providence knows that the, 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 the vaccine, if you like, against our unbelief is to memorize verse 1 to 2. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel, let the people of God now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. We need to remember that. So that when we are hurting, we can remember the main point, the first truth that we learn in this psalm. All people of God suffer. If we memorize that, verse 1 to 2, we'll remember the truth of that, verse 1 to 2. All people of God suffer. You and I are not immune from suffering. That's the first truth we learn here. But that raises the question, doesn't it? If all people of God suffer, then why does my suffering matter? I mean, if that's, that's the case, all people of God suffer, why should I, child, I care so much um, about my own suffering then? Well, we should care because of the second truth we learn in this psalm. The second truth we learn in this psalm is that our suffering really hurts. God recognizes that our suffering really hurts. The first point is all people of God suffer. And the second point, our suffering really hurts. The people of God here are not just saying we have suffered. They are saying we are not robots. We have been deeply hurt to the core of our being. Look at verse 3 there. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their pharaohs. I think that's how you say it. Pharaohs, pharaohs. I heard some interesting pronunciation as we were reading that together. I'll go with pharaohs, right? And then um, ask Sister Dye. I'm sure she'll tell us how to say it properly afterwards. Pharaohs, right? So Israel is saying that in verse 3, isn't it? We feel we have been torn apart by our enemies as a farmer tears the ground with his plough. We have been dehumanized, they are saying. And notice that they use the phrase, they made long pharaohs. I think it is indicating, isn't it? That they have made long their pharaohs. It's indicating that the pain Israel has suffered is skin deep. This isn't just like touch you kind of thing. This is deep pain. They have been deeply traumatized in their lives. And we should not hear that it is quite likely that Israel is not just saying we feel we've been run over by a plow. The people may actually be remembering an actual event. And the reason we say that is because in, the, in Old Testament times, it was common for kings to use farming implements on prisoners of war. They literally plowed terrible pain on their backs. 
So the people of God may pro are probably saying, we remember it like yesterday. How our enemies committed war crimes against us. They tortured us. They tortured us like animals. Now, whether the image is a real event or not, uh, the hurt they have suffered by their enemies has left them physically, emotionally, and psychologically wounded. They have been deeply traumatized. And so this passage is reminding us that all people of God suffer at the hands of others, but it's going further than that. It is saying this matters because when people mistreat us, it really hurts. Now, to be clear, many of us have never experienced this kind of brutality Israel has suffered. You have never had your baby killed for being male, as happened to Israel in Egypt. You have never been carried in chains in exile with the little ones taken and dashed against the rock just for being Jewish, as we read in Psalm 137. You have had enemies, but not like Haman or Haman, who hated Mordecai so much, he wanted everyone linked to Mordecai, the entire race, to be completely wiped out. You've got enemies, but, uh, I mean, not like that. You see, all people of God suffer, but not all of us have suffered the same depth of pain described here. So that raises the question, doesn't it? Why then has God preserved Psalm 129 in the Bible? I think it's for four reasons. The first reason is that it's to help us see that, to help us see what sin has done to us. It has turned us into monsters who dehumanize one another. It is another human being who did, verse 3, the plows plowed upon my back. They made long their pharaohs. If you need evidence for the existence of sin, look at verse 3. That's what the Lord is saying. The second reason, I think, is here because Psalm 129 is reminding those of us here who have experienced deep personal suffering that God, the God of the Bible, does not sweep anything under the carpet. God is not blind to any mistreatment you have suffered. He sees your pain. And that's why he's written it here in black and white, as it were. And we know as we look to the New Testament, we see that God has a plan to make all things new one day when the Lord Jesus comes. The third reason I think this psalm is here is that it is challenging those who think they don't need God. To put it bluntly, I need God. I need God to deliver justice to those who do things like verse 3. We need God, beloved. If there is no God, what we say to those who are dying of COVID-19, apparently because of a dangerous leak of a virus, 
from a woman love, 3.5 million. What do, if that happens to be true? I'm not proclaiming that. But if that happens to be true, that is a negligence. That is a war crime. What do we say then to those families who have 3.5 million that have lost loved ones? If there's no God, there's nothing we can say. If there's no God, what do we say to victims of human trafficking? The world, beloved, has nothing to say on all these issues. Oh, they can challenge the existence of God here and there, but then we say, okay, fine, we agree with you. Tell us then, what do we say to these people? Nothing. Nothing. And young people just say, as you grow in life, this is your answer. This is what we say. We can speak to friends who have suffered deep pain. We've got something to say to them. We can say, God has not forgotten you. Finally, I think this psalm is here to encourage those of us that have been deeply hurt to know that we are not abnormal. It is normal to feel hurt by how others have mistreated, abused, harassed, or attacked us. Oh, beloved, we are not weak Christians because we have suffered and feel it. There is a shameful, triumphant Christianity that seems to think that if you've gone through deep suffering and you're still hurting, then somehow you're a weak believer. Oh, then what do we... If that's the case, then we may as well rip apart the entire Bible. Because right in front of us, we have people in Psalm 129, the people of God, confessing. The plow was plowed upon my back. They made long their pharaohs. We are not weak because we feel really hurt. Quite the opposite. All people of God suffer. And our suffering really hurts. And because our suffering really does hurt, this passage is encouraging us as the people of God today to be more open about our suffering. This psalm, you've got to read this one carefully. Notice what it says. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth personal confession perhaps as they are standing in the assembly, turning to one another, let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. In other words, the pain that they have suffered, they are bringing it into the assembly and they are encouraging one another to talk about it, confess it before God. They are not suffering in isolation, they are pouring it together in a communal lament before God. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let the church now say, we might say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. You know, in many churches, including our church, there is a Facebook culture. We like to tell each other how great our life is going. But it's quite shallow, really. Very shallow. It is shallow because it's not the real us. The real us, real life, is Psalm 129. Suddenly we come to church to impress each other. I don't know who we are trying to impress. And we know that it is folly to try and impress one another because it's the opposite of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus did not come to impress us or be impressed by us. Oh, beloved, he came to collect all of our sins. 
all of our sins and carried them all the way to the hill called Calvary. Our Lord Jesus came to enter our pain and weep with us. Isn't that what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane? He is the God who weeps. Our God is a God who weeps with and for his children. He wept with us at the tomb of Lazarus. And he wept for us in Gethsemane. And he's inviting all true followers of him today to share in his tears for those gathered here. For the people sat next to him. You see, as we sit here this morning, <clears throat> someone is probably being mistreated in their marriage. And they need us to share their tears before God. Someone is probably struggling with a deep emotional wound that is tearing them apart. And they need us to cry with them before God. Someone is probably being bullied at work. Or by a neighbor. And they are crushed by that. If it's at work, they are really worried for their future. And they desperately need our prayers. But we can only do that if we know this truth well enough. All people of God suffer and our suffering really hurts. If we remember that point... Oh, beloved, we will soon realize that for us to weep with people, we must move beyond a simply social distance alone. When we realize this truth, it forces us, it moves us to make ourselves available, to rearrange our diaries, to spend time with those who are crushed. It forces us to do that. It helps us to think of the opening up of the country it's experiencing at the moment and realize there's an opportunity now as a country opens up to open our lives to one another. Oh, we can't go back to the way it was. Suffering by ourselves. Wooded up in our homes. Always focusing on us and not others. We must change. We must change. We must change because how can we weep for people we barely know? It's impossible. We must open up our lives to each other. And we must ask God for wisdom. Now we can do that in, uh, in this challenging time. But also, how can we as a church, we've been talking about it I think, for over four and, a half, four and a half years, how can we as a church grow to be a church that weeps with one another in months and years ahead. We need to do it. We need to pray for wisdom for that because all people of God suffer and it really hurts. Now, that's the second truth, isn't it? And our suffering really hurts. Now, that sounds very gloomy, isn't it? You're like, this is gloomy today. Is there any good news in this passage? Yes, it is. There is good news and that's our third truth. The first truth is that all people of God suffer. The second truth is that our suffering really hurts. The, third, the good news is the third point, the third truth, but, but God will never let us be destroyed. 
God will never let us be destroyed. Though the people of God have suffered terribly, notice they have not been defeated. They have been knocked down, but not out. Right? Look at verse 2 again. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet, they have not prevailed against me. They are a scourge survivor, aren't they? They, they? they have experienced triumph still over their suffering. They are saying, we have suffered deeply and it still hurts, but we are still standing. And immediately it forces us to ask the question, how is that possible? Well, we have to jump to verse 4, don't we? Because verse 4 is the answer. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. What Israel is saying is, is that the evil plowmen plowed long pharaohs of hate on our back. They shamefully attacked and dehumanized us. But we have lived to tell our story. We are survivors. Why? Not because of some inner strength. It is not even because our enemies quit on us. No. We are still standing because our God stuck by us. The Lord is righteous. He does what is right. And what is the right that the Lord did? He ripped apart the plows of the evil men. He tore it to shreds. And he has kept us. He has cut the cords of the wicked. This, 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 this psalm is teaching us that God always keeps his people. He never lets his people suffer to the point it ruins our relationship with him. We will suffer. That's the whole point of verse 1 and 2. But even in our suffering, it never breaks that relationship we have with him. And therefore we realize immediately that Psalm 129 is reinforcing a truth we learned in Psalm 121. Do you remember what that psalm is about? The Lord is my what? Keeper. The Lord is a shed at my right hand. It's saying the same thing in a different way. It is saying whatever situation we are facing, God our creator will keep our life with him. Because he's our covenant Lord. We are in a binding, committed relationship with him. When you became a Christian, Jesus did not just shake your hands and say, thank you for repenting, now face the rest of, the life, of, of your life on your own. No, 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 no. The psalmist is saying, look, the Lord Jesus promised, and we know that in the rest of the Bible, I give my followers eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have never, they have not prevailed against me. And indeed, they cannot prevail. Why? Because the Lord is righteous. Whatever the world throws at us, God is our bodyguard. And the fact that you are here this morning, if you've suffered terribly in your life, is proof that this truth is true, isn't it? You are living proof that the Bible is true. You are still being kept. You are still standing. And I dare I say you are growing perhaps to look more and more to God than you've ever done. So as we meet this morning, let us let this truth sink in, isn't it? God will never let us be crushed. And let it drive you to give thanks to God. 
and let it encourage you particularly to pay close attention to the final lesson of this psalm. The fourth and final lesson of this psalm is this. We must actively trust God with our hearts. So the first point is that all people of God suffer. What does that matter? Well, it matters because our suffering really hurts. Is there any good news? Yes. That's the third point. But God will never let us be destroyed. So how then should we respond as people who are being kept by God? Well, we must actively trust God with our pain. That's the final point. We must actively trust God with our hurt or our pain. And we need to listen to that truth because, you see, there are three dangers we face when the world causes us pain. There are three dangers all of us face when we go through deep suffering. The first danger is that we may refuse to face up to the pain we have suffered. If you've ever spent time with anyone who's gone through deep suffering, it's that it's very hard for them to talk about it. I mean, I mean really to talk about it. So that's a danger, isn't it? To not face the pain we've suffered. And of course, the problem with that is that when we bottle up our pain, it generates more toxic emotional waste, which if it piles up, it can poison our hearts. It can poison our future relationships. It can poison, of course, the fundamental relationship, which is our relationship with God. So that's the first danger, bottling it up. The second danger is that the pain we have suffered may trap us in the past. So some people have faced the pain, but in facing the pain, they they find themselves constantly replaying the video of that pain. And of course, and the more they replay the video, the more angry they get. Now, let us be clear, beloved. There is nothing wrong with being angry at sin. In fact, it is the right thing to be angry at sin. You've suffered deep pain in your life. The right response, first of all, biblical response, is to be angry at the sin. The sin that has, you, that has, that has caused you. Anger in the scripture is always the right response to sin. God is angry at sin. Of course, his anger is different from our anger. But it's still anger, isn't it? So the problem isn't anger. The problem is that if we allow them that anger to continue endlessly, it may become sinful anger. It may become an anger that fills us with deep hatred for the other person. But more than that, it may become a hunger that makes us forget we are sinners. We become self-righteous in our anger. Because we're so focused on what others have done, we forget we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's the, that's the second danger, isn't it? The third danger is that the pain of the past may make us live with fear in the future. So forgetfulness, perhaps being trapped in the past, the second danger. The third danger is that the pain we've suffered, having faced it, could completely paralyze us. We may be frightened of those people who have hurt us, and we may even be frightened of other people. If 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 the hurt came through the context of 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 a marriage relationship, we may just be frightened of 
remarrying or whatever, if that's the biblical um, situation. My point is, future relationships can be impaired of all sorts. Pain paralyzes us. So, so with those three dangers in mind, the question then comes to us, doesn't it? How do we deal with these dangers in our life? How do you and I begin to move forward in life? The answer again to this is in this psalm, isn't it? Because this psalm says we must actively not bottle up the pain, but bring that pain before God. And ask God to deal with it. We must trust him with our pain. How do we trust God with our pain? Well, we must take three steps. Perhaps parallel steps. Not necessarily sequential steps. I just call them steps. But three steps, right? In your outline. The first step we must take. How do we deal with our pain in our lives? First of all, take all your pain to God. Take all your hurt to God. As I said, this psalm is a psalm of lament. It is in our Bible to help us empty our pain to God as Israel does. And you must use this psalm really to pray back to God. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plow was plowed upon my back. They made long their pharaoh. You must use the psalm to pray back the pain to God. Because the people of God here are saying, look, do not bottle up your pain. Allow the pain to escort you into the presence of God. Tell your pain to God. And can I just say, thinking about the point I made about opening up and being open with one another about our suffering. Can I just make the, a very important point? What we're talking about here, taking our pain to God as a first step, is very hard to do. It is very hard to do. And the only way I think we can do it effectively is if we have godly people who genuinely love us, who can sit down with us and pray with us as we walk that pain before God. They literally, should I say, need to hold our hands in prayer and to cry out with us before God. Let Israel now say, and that's the role for us, isn't it? As the elders and, and for those who are leading in different, different areas of the church, this, this is a template for how we walk people through pain. So first of all, take all your head to God. Secondly, start praising God for keeping you. The, the reminder of this psalm is that things are not as bleak as we feel. We are still standing, isn't it? Yet they have not prevailed against me. Verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. We should remember verse 4 is praising God. So start praising God for what he's already done, for his righteous deeds. And praise God that he has placed a limit on your suffering. He's already protecting and caring for you. Praise him for that. Praise him that he's keeping you as his self-deposit. Beloved, before you and I can ask God to do anything for us, in the middle of lament, we must still thank God for what he's doing. Lament starts with that pouring out of our pain, and it moves us into this area of thanking God. We don't remain in that. We move to thanking God. 
The third thing we must do is that you must surrender those who have hurt you to God. So important. Look at verse 5 to 8. We're not going to spend very long on these verses just to say, notice what they say, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. These words sound shocking and they're perhaps difficult for us to understand. But what they're simply doing is they're surrendering the issue to God. That's it. They're surrendering the issue to God. In verse 5, they're saying to God, please protect us from any future pain. We don't want to suffer. That's a normal human thing to cry for. Please, please Lord, push back against those who want to hurt us. That's what verse 5 is saying. In verse 6 to 7, the people of God are asking God to ensure their enemies do not outlive them. They want God to cut the tree of evil down to its roots. In verse 8, they are praying that their enemies would not be prosperous, that they become mistaken for people of God, who are, for people who are blessed by God. So you see, when you step back, you see that the whole prayer is about the people surrendering those who have hurt them to God. They are leaving the matter in the hands of the sovereign Lord. And you and I, if we are going through deep hurt or we've suffered hurt, we must do the same. When we are hurting, we must surrender those who hurt us to God. We must remember vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. The judge of all the earth will do right, beloved, because the Lord is righteous. The final thing we need to do so take all your head to God. Start praising God for keeping you. Surrender those, the third thing, who have hurt you to God. And the final thing, beloved, and this is the main thing, and it is this. Remember the grace of God in Jesus. The hard words of verse 4 to 8 are reminding us that God takes all sin seriously. And if we are honest, one of the reasons we find it difficult to read verse 4 to um, verse 5 to verse 8 uh, is that we realize immediately that we have caused pain to other people in our lives. If we are honest with ourselves, we deserve verse 4 to verse 8. Who here has treated another person perfect? Anyone? Yes, the pain we have caused others may not be on this scale, and I'm sure it is not, but we are just as guilty before God as enemies of Israel or as our enemies. So what then is the difference between what we've done and what others do to us? Well, the difference is the blood of Jesus. The only difference between you and them is that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It is that Jesus shed his blood for your sins. And that God by his spirit has convicted you of your sin and brought you to repentance. And notice that this death of Jesus that speaks, that, that speaks for you is foreshadowed in verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They met long their pharaohs. 
When we read verse 3, beloved, if you, if you know your Bible, you cannot read verse 3 without thinking of Jesus. You cannot read verse 3 without thinking of the prophecy in Isaiah 52, 50 verse 6, and of course Isaiah 52 verse 14. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so mad beyond human semblance. His form, we might say, even his back beyond that of the children of mankind. We think of Isaiah, goes on in verse 3 of chapter 53. He says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He jumps to verse 7. What does Isaiah tell us of Jesus? He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before his shearers. That farming image again. is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The shocking good news of this psalm. Is that God in Jesus has come to give himself to us. He has allowed our sins to literally scourge his back. He has allowed our sins to scourge him to death on the cross. Instead of letting us suffer the wrath of God in hell. Instead of us getting verse 4 to verse 8. Our Lord Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God we deserve. The good news of Jesus is that right there on that cross, the Son of God suffered physical violence by us and spiritual violence for us. The spiritual violence of God for us. And we know that wasn't the end, isn't it? The Bible says on the third day, our Lord Jesus Christ rose from death so that all who believe in him can have new life. What, what this means is that if anyone is in Jesus... We are no longer defined by the pain and suffering we have suffered. Our identity is now in Christ. We are not our past. We are not our present. We are not our future pain. We are children of God in the Lord Jesus by His grace alone. And that is how we must see ourselves. And most importantly, beloved, no matter what others have done, No matter what others have done to us, we must never forget that but for the blood of Jesus, we deserve to share a cell with them in hell. It is only out of the abundance of the love of God in Jesus that we have escaped the wrath of God. We will always be seen and served by grace and grace alone. And the more you and I remember this grace of God we have received in Jesus, the more joy and peace we will enjoy even in the deepest of pain. I have spoken to you at great length too long. But just to remind you, we started with that question, isn't it? What should we do when life is hurting? Well, we have seen that we start by remembering that all people of God suffer. That's the first thing. And our suffering really matters because it really hurts. That was the second point. But the good news is that no matter how much we suffer, we'll never be crushed by it. That was the third point. 
Because God is keeping us, isn't it? And because God is keeping us, we must actively trust Him in our pain. And we asked that question, didn't we? How do we do that? Well, those final four application points. Take all your heart to God. Start praising, start praising God for keeping you. Surrender those who are virtue to God. And remember the grace of God in Jesus.